Good morning, everyone. Like Anthony said, my name is Seth. I'm one of the pastors at Redemption Gateway, and it's good to get to come up here and, and see you all. We see your eyes, and it's a, it's a real treat. Those of you watching online, thanks for tuning in as well. Uh, so I grew up in the, in the valley. Both my parents went to NAU, so they're lumberjacks. I don't know if there's lumberjack folks in here. Um, but then uh, we went, I went to ASU, and so uh, we're number one in innovation. So I don't know where NAU ranks on, innova- on innovation, but it's not number one. So... So there's that. Uh, that's kind of we have belonged to that. But growing up in the valley, and one of the things I love about coming up to Flagstaff is, you know, there's seasons, there's weather besides hot and less hot. And I, you're growing up, especially uh, when you have you know, recess. I remember all the times like up here, there's the possibility of snow days. They probably don't really ever happen because it's not like Wisconsin or something like that. But there's like snow day, but it gets cold. And there's like you have to bundle your kids up, and and even like in areas in Phoenix area uh, when it's super cold outside, if you cover your elbows, you're basically good. That's kind of all it really takes. But growing up, we would have days where it was so hot you weren't allowed to go outside and play. I don't know if any of you grew up in the valley or just after school or whatnot, but we'd have days where it's too hot. Over 115, you'd have to stay inside and play games. But there are those days where you go outside and you'd play. You know, especially like in fourth, fifth grade, where you're like giving it all you got at recess, and you're trying to as much as possible, prove it to the girl that you like, that you're something, you know, and so you're, you're going 110% playing tag when it's 114, just under the, the barrier, and you're sweating like crazy, and then you come piling back into the classroom, and there's one drinking fountain, and the rule is like you only get three second turn, you know, and so you're in the back of the line, you're sweating, the AC's not, not on, um, you, and so it's like you're just your lips are cracking, you're so thirsty, and you haven't drank all day because you're in fifth grade and you're an idiot, and so, and so you're just waiting in line, and so it's one, two, three, and then everyone yells, next, because everyone's thirsty, and there's this desperation, and then finally you get a drink of the water, and the three seconds is almost more torturous than it is relieving, because you just got enough of the water to realize, like, this is the thing that I need, and I can only have three seconds of it, so you have to go back to the line, and so then you're just kind of doing the I never, the three-second rule never made sense to me because I think people spend an equal amount of time in line waiting for their turn again and again and again unless you just let someone drink as much as they want uh, on the first go. But anyway, so it's, that's like the Arizona recess. You're just super thirsty and you're super tired. And I remember like being really annoyed at the way this, the people would breathe at the drinking fountain, like, <gasps> and then they're slobbering, their whole mouth over the thing, they're desperate. And now I have a son who's like 14, 15 months, years old, and he, he drinks water in a way where it's like no matter how thirsty he is, he's about to die of thirst, you know? And so he drinks and drinks and drinks and drinks, and then he takes his mouth away, and it's like, <gasps> and I just, I don't know, drama just is annoying to me. And so I'm trying to get him to longer, longer uh, smaller breaths, more of them is kind of the deal. It's not registering yet, but it's... it's but this, this idea of like thirst, it's one of the first things that we ever experience when we're born and we don't even have words yet to say, right? You come, you, you're born thirsty. You come out wanting milk. That's kind of part of God's design is there's like this, you, you're born into this deficit position. You, you come out of the womb and like the, the healthier, the stronger the baby, the less traumatic the delivery, you're thirsty right away. It's, it's this pre-verbal gut-level desire of, I don't have what I need, I need what I need, and I'm going to... You know, there's even like these videos of these like infants being able to crawl up their mom, you know, before the... And they forget how to crawl, you know, five seconds later, but there's like that initial survival, I have to... I'm, I thirst. 
And I think it's really important here that in this book of John, what Jesus is getting at here in this whole idea of thirsting is that reality. He says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me. That he's appealing to this gut-level, pre-verbal sense of I lack, but something else has what I lack. This drive from the gut, from the mouth, that I can't even necessarily put into words what it is, but there's something that I need that I don't have, and I'm going to do what it takes to get it. And especially in this book of, uh, this book of John, but what's been going on the last couple of chapters basically is in John chapter 5 and John chapter 4, Jesus starts doing these works, these miracles, but these religious leaders, the Jews, is they're not on board with these miracles he's doing because he's doing them on the Sabbath, Jesus healing people. And so what ends up happening is the religious leaders become opposed to Jesus because he is violating their social code. He's not breaking Old Testament laws. He's not breaking God's law. He's breaking their law. He is actually, in his actions, demonstrating that God's law supersedes status quo social laws. But the religious aristocracy, the people who manage the, the, the way that God people ought to be worshiping God, they're trying to control the means of access to God's grace. They're really upset because their position is being threatened. We actually see that later in John. One of the reasons they hate Jesus is because they say, if he goes on doing these miracles, he's going to threaten our position and our nation. And it's actually this kind of weird form of religious fundamentalism and nationalism that is making them want to see, in a sense, and experience this being threatened by Jesus. But what ends up happening is Jesus is doing these miracles, and the crowds start coming. They hear that he's doing these works, and they're going, I'm hearing about this man. Do I understand this man? What's this guy's deal? And the crowd's getting bigger and bigger and bigger. But the crowd is coming, not necessarily to worship Jesus, but to use Jesus. Going, I heard this guy gives goods and services liberally. I want his goods and services. So the crowd's getting bigger and bigger and bigger. But then Jesus, not doing good PR work, starts opening his mouth. He starts teaching. And his teaching is hard, and people don't like it, and the crowd gets thin, and the people wander away. And then Jesus' brothers at the beginning of John 7 are telling Jesus, hey, there's this big feast of booths, this big festival. This is your moment. You could go and do more miracles. You could win back the crowd. And Jesus basically says, I'm uninterested in winning the crowd back. Because what they want him to do is to keep doing miracles, but to keep his mouth shut. Because if he would do that, the crowd would stay big. But what he ends up doing is saying, I'm not doing any more miracles because I'm not a dance pony situation. That's not what I do. But I'm going to keep opening my mouth, even though what's making the people go away from me is the fact that I'm opening my mouth. That Jesus gets incredibly offensive, not necessarily to the crowds, but to the religious leaders. And the religious leaders are threatened by him, and they resist him. And what this little text is going to show us, and even Jesus' use of thirst is he uses the language of thirst to show us two things. One, he's showing us that the religious leaders, the Jews, do not thirst for God. They're so confident, so secure, so decided, so arrived, so know-it-all, that their hearts are hardened. They no longer sense that they need to be taught by God. They've arrived. Case is closed. I've read that book. I know what the answers are. But there's something that's happening in the crowd outside of the religious establishment that God is using and he's stirring. And there are people who thirst. And God is drawing those people to himself. And so I want us to really kind of look at this contrast here between um, the way the crowd is thirsting versus the way the Pharisees are thirsting. And what we're going to actually see is the Pharisees acknowledge that they have problems. 
but the Pharisees actually think their problems are too small. So let me pray, and then we're going to talk through this last chunk of uh, the text, all right? Jesus, I pray that you help me be clear, help it land, and I do pray that we would thirst rightly, not wrongly, uh, for your word and for you to teach us. In the name of your son, we pray. Amen. All right, so um, the text that I'm actually teaching out of is John 7, 25 um, through 39, and so we read kind of the climax of that, 37 through 39, but what's going on here in John 7 is some of these crowds, the people are saying, isn't this the guy who they seek to kill, verse 25, verse 26, and here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can this be that this guy, that the authorities really know this is the Christ? And so what's going on is the crowd or the people are saying, do the religious authorities really know he's the Christ and they're trying to hide the reality? Like they're kind of doing this a little bit like conspiracy theory thing. Like do the leaders really know what's going on and they're just being threatened by it and suppressing the truth? And so the crowd's actually starting to get a feel for, I kind of see what's going on here. These authorities are being threatened by this guy and they're hiding from us reality. Uh, and so when, they, when we know this man comes, but, they go, but they're not sure yet because they're going, we know where this guy comes from, but we know that when the Christ comes, we won't know where he comes from. So Jesus hears them because these people are, are muttering, they're murmuring. We see in verse 32, the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering. So like the crowd's having all these side conversations, what's really going on here? Jesus hears them, what's going on? Verse 28, so Jesus proclaims. It's kind of one of those moments, I don't know if you've ever been in class where you're like whispering with your friend next to you, and then your teacher goes like, I heard you, Seth, and you're like, oh no, I'm exposed. I expect that this is like kind of what's going on here is the crowd's all muttering, and then Jesus stands up and he says, um, you know me, and you know where I've come from. Like, I hear what you guys are talking about. Don't think that your whispers aren't landing on my ears. But I've not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. And I just want us to take a moment and realize that for the Jews in the first century, whether it's the Pharisees or the crowd, these are Jews following Jesus, for Jesus to look at the crowd and tell them, you do not know God, would have been incredibly offensive and probably caused them to be right off. Hey, religious leaders, you who make a living telling people, it'd be like looking at Anthony and telling him, hey, Anthony, you don't know God. It'd be like, okay, crazy guy, get out of here. Like, his job is knowing God. That's like his deal. You don't know God. You think you know what the Christ is going to be like. You think you know. But not only that, he says, you don't even know me. Maybe you've had that experience before where someone feels like they really get you right away. This happens to me from time to time. And this is, this is going to be a pity me story. And so sorry in advance for that. But this is like when I go to the gym and I meet new people. And there's kind of always that general exchange of, hey, what do you, what do you like to do? What's, what do you like to do on the weekends? What's your family like? What do you do for a living? You know, half the time that question comes up and I say, I'm a pastor, and I just see people kind of go like, you know, like they don't physically exit, but they emotionally exit the conversation. They're like, okay, guard up. You know, next thing you know, they're going to, like there's just like, they, they fill in all the blanks. They hear one word and they think they know the rest about you. I hate that. I mean, I'm sure that's true for a variety of other vocations as well, uh, whether it's you're a lawyer, like, oh, that must be nice, you know, um, making sure the good people get locked up and the bad people stay out of jail. That must be nice. And so whatever that is. So there's, we tend to fill in the blanks on people. And so Jesus is going, you guys think you know me. You don't know me. And you don't know the Father. You know what this deal is. Verse 30 says, and they're seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. This is making the point that Jesus has made earlier and is going to make again is, uh, you think that you're going to seek me in order to kill me, but guess what? No one takes my life from me. I lay my life down. They're seeking him. Verse 30, they're seeking to arrest him. 31, yet many of these people believed in him. This is honestly one of these verses that's confusing to me. So enter into my confusion here. 
Verse 31, yet many people believed in him, and they said, when the Christ comes, will he do more signs than this man has done? So there's aspect of these people are looking at Jesus, and they're saying, I believe in him. But at the same time, they're going, but when the Messiah comes, is he going to do more miracles than this guy? And so you have to ask the question, what does it mean when it says that they believe in him, if they also at the same time don't know that he's the Christ, the Messiah, the one who's come to save This is kind of, I think, part of what's going on here in this crowd is like their understanding of who Jesus is is slowly doing this. And they've, they've, they are trusting him. They see the Christ. So these people also, they also have a belief that a Messiah is coming, a Jesus is coming, a, a Christ is coming. But they think, I don't know if this is this guy. Will the Messiah do more signs than him? And so there's this like picture of the crowd being in process. And some of you in this room may be right there. You're like, what I know about Jesus I like I don't know a lot about him yet. I've, I've heard other people say things about him that I maybe don't like, but I haven't heard those things from him. So there's kind of like this testing the waters on Jesus thing. Like, I kind of trust this guy. I like what he's doing. I like who he's offending. I also like who he's not offending. I like, I like his miracles. I like the fact that he's not swayed by the crowd, that the crowd keeps making demands of him, and he's like unaffected. Like he's, he's resolved in who he's going to be. He's not here to pander or to cater or to just build. I like this guy. I don't know him that well. And honestly, in my experience, talking to a lot of people who come to faith as adults, to some degree what happens in their heart, mind, and soul is kind of like this. There's like this. They kind of start to love Jesus without having a lot of the information. And then over time, the rest of their life, they develop more information it's kind of like when you get married. Like, uh, I had someone ask me, like, what do you do for premarital counseling? And I mostly don't think premarital counseling is valuable because, like, you have no idea what your problems are going to be. I'm very a huge fan of postmarital counseling because when the, when the garbage hits the fan and you have to deal with your problems, like, lean in, address them, and do that. But you have no idea who really you are or who your spouse is when you first get married. And sitting and having a talk about what you anticipate your obstacles being is mostly, I think, wasting time. Now, there's some benefits of, like, are we on the same page about what marriage is, what marriage isn't? Uh, do we have, like, general sense of expectations of is mother-in-law going to be over every five minutes or not, you know? And so some of that stuff can be valuable, but I think you get married, and you're like, you don't really know your spouse that well, and you spend the rest of your life getting to know them, getting to know yourself, and there is an aspect of following Jesus where if you wait to have all the information, you'll never decide to follow him. There's, there's no person who has exhaustive knowledge of God. So you get it figured out and get your stuff all buttoned up, you'll never come to Jesus. And so maybe that's you. Maybe you're going, I think I believe in him, but I don't really know if he's... Like, there's an aspect of this that's like, keep reading, keep getting to know him. Even you think about going fishing, where you, you throw, put bait on a hook and throw the hook in the water, and the hook gets in the fish's mouth, but it's not in the boat yet. Like, when exactly did you get to say you caught the fish? You know, when it's in the boat, well, I've seen fish jump out of the boat, <laughs> flay around and flip out. When it's on your plate and you're eating it, now it's definitely caught. You know, or maybe you don't like fishing or whatever. But I think there's an aspect to this crowd where it's like the hook is in their mouth, but they're not yet in the boat yet. And maybe that's true for some of you. Where God's got you, you're, you like what he's about, you've bit, the hook's in your mouth, and he's bringing you along bit by bit, reeling you in. And there's a hesitancy to just get in the boat, but God's still at work. And sometimes he reels you in, he lets a little line out. He reels you in, he lets a little line out. That kind of process of coming to faith tends to take time. 
especially because it's about thirst. It's about desire. It's not just about getting your doctrine right. Like, really knowing God versus being able to accurately describe God are two kind of different things. Reality and the description of reality. There's a gap there sometimes. So the crowd is starting to get wooed to Jesus. The hook's in the mouth. They're not in the boat. They're all kind of going, I believe in him, but I don't really know if he's a Christ yet. And so they keep coming. But then verse 32, the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him. And the chief priests and officers and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Then Jesus says to the, to the Pharisees, to the leaders, to the officers, he said, I'll be with you a little longer, and then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I'm going, you cannot come. So notice even the different way that Jesus addresses the crowd versus the way that Jesus addresses the religious oligarchy. Right? To the crowd, it's whoever thirsts, come. To these religious leaders who have hard hearts, he says, you'll seek me and not find me. And that sounds very anti-Jesus. I thought Jesus was like this inclusive guy, come one, come all. But here what he's talking about, he's not just saying you'll seek me to be saved by me, but so far, every time the Pharisees are seeking Jesus, they're seeking to kill him, they're seeking to arrest him, they're seeking to undermine him, they're seeking to overthrow him. And so there's this picture here of they're seeking Jesus, but for the wrong reasons. They're seeking to use him. I'll be on board with Jesus if he props up my religious establishment. But if he's not propping up my religious establishment, then I'm not on board with Jesus. I'm going to seek to get rid of him. The other week, my garage door opener broke, and I was trying to change it and fix it myself because I needed a win. You know, I've, I'm working on dissertation, and it's like, it's like this eternal project that never ends. I'm like, I need to finish a project. And so I, was, I went to Costco, bought whatever one they sell, went home. I, and I, one of the things I wasn't expecting was you have to strip wires, and I didn't have a wire stripper, so instead I was using uh, a straight razor blade. And so I was holding the wire against my thumb, doing this thing, sweet razor blade. Anyway, blood got a lot of places. So... When you try to use the tool for the wrong reasons, the tool punishes you and it doesn't get the job done. And these Pharisees are trying to use Jesus for the wrong reasons. And they're about to be cast out by him and not get what they want in the first place. When Jesus says, where am I going? Where I'm going, you can't come with me. Later on in chapter 8, he clarifies this. He says, where I'm going, you can't go with me because you will die in your sin. You hard-hearted unrepentant, think you have it all figured out, religious leaders who refuse to be taught by God in the flesh, you are not going to repent and you will die in your sin. I'm going to heaven, you're going to hell. You don't know the Father, you don't know me, your hearts are hard, where I'm going, you cannot come. But look at what the religious leaders think their problem is. Verse 35, the Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? Jesus says, where? And the Jewish leaders answer, who? I'm going, and you can't come with me. And they go, is he going to spend time with the Greeks? Because, yuck, of course we can't come with him. They have made peace with their ethnic divisions. They have made judgments about why the Greeks are lower class than they are. They have made assumptions about the who, what, when, where, why of the Greeks. And they think the biggest problem in their life is a little ethnic tension, and it's on the Greeks to solve that problem. And Jesus looking them straight in the eye, and he's saying, where I'm going, you can't come because you'll die in your sin. And they think, not a chance, we are certainly right with the Father. Our real problem is some horizontal tension with those people over there who are gross. 
And Jesus is saying, you think your problems are this big? Your problems are this big. You think you have separation between you and the Greeks? Not even a little bit is that the whole story. Your problem is like this. I see your problem is like this. You hate God and you hate the fact that he's come to challenge your authority and you're kind of just made peace with the fact that you actually believe that all are one in Adam and you are going on maintaining this ethnic hostility. You think your problems are sociological? Jesus is saying your problems are theological. You don't know God. The hurdle to reconciliation between Jew and Greek, between Jew and Gentile, is really, really high. And the vision that Jesus ends up casting, the vision that's picked up again by Paul, is that in Christ, Jew and Gentile are unified. In Christ, those who are far off are brought near. In Christ, the dividing wall of hostility is torn down. Sometimes we hear people say things like, you don't have a skin problem, you have a sin problem. But that's missing the point. Is here, Jesus is even highlighting, and these Jews are demonstrating, the fact that when you are separated from God, you inevitably have downstream separation between humanity and humanities and ethnicities. You want to be reconciled to the Greeks? You better be reconciled to God. And guess what? Getting reconciled with the Greeks won't save you. Getting reconciled to God is what's going to save you. And so some of what's even going on here is is landing in our current culture moment that everyone thinks the biggest problem in society is ethnic tension. And I think that's a problem in society. It absolutely is. But that's a product of our separation from God. And here's the really challenging thing. That if we, as people who believe to know God have made peace with ongoing ethnic hostility. We need to ask ourselves from this text, do we know God? Do we know the God of Abraham, the God of Adam, who created this one human race, and we just make peace with the fact that there's division? Me. I think part of what's going on here is the people who are certain they're right with God but were okay with the fact that they were not right with their neighbor, are being used as an illustration to warn us about this reality, that if you've just made peace with being not right with your neighbor, maybe we should ask ourselves the question, are we actually right with God? And so sociology always flows down from theology. Intimacy with God always creates intimacy with humanity. And I'm not saying we can snap our fingers and solve all the ethnic hostility in the world. But if we pretend it's not a problem, we're acting like the Pharisees. And if we pretend like it's the biggest problem, we're actually ironically acting like the Pharisees. We've got to get our order of situations right. We must be reconciled to God. And have soft hearts and the ability to see this. What does he mean? You'll seek me and not find me. What does he mean? Where I'm going, you can't come. He's not talking about ethnic division. He's talking about you don't know God. So for us as Redemption Church, Redemption Flagstaff, we need to be a people who recognize the fact that ethnic hostility and racial hostility goes on existing. And if we just kind of say, it is what it is, we're not sharing the heart of Christ or the heart of Paul or the heart of God. We're actually acting like Pharisees who go, hmm, division is what it is. 
But simultaneously, the Pharisees want to see that as their only problem. That's another thing that's going on in our society. People on the left tend to see racial or ethnic division as like the only problem. Every problem is explained by that problem. And this is why I think the mission of the church is always has to be evangelism. It's the tip of the sphere, announcing Jesus, God most high, the Lord of all, the maker of heaven and earth, is holy. And when our hearts are hard and we say, I don't need you, we are in a dangerous place. And where he's going, we can't come. But if the Spirit breaks us by his grace and we manifest thirst, we're in a different position. This whole idea of belief, whoever believes in me, as the scripture said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. He's saying, if you're thirsty, I'll give you a river of living water. What it ends up saying is, not only will you receive the living water, so your thirst will be quenched, but you'll become a river of it, and out of your heart will overflow it. You will become the means of grace to other people. God will fill your heart to the degree that it overflows and helps fill others' hearts. This is part of the reason that we are blessed to be a blessing. We will meet God. His Spirit will awaken our senses and our heart to the point that we are tuned to reality, and our life overflows, and we give life to others. We are blessed to be a blessing. That if you really want to meet needs socially, if you really want to meet needs theologically, if you really want to be a person who is a blessing and a value add to society, you must meet God, have your heart overflow with living water, and then pour it out to other people. We don't just drink a bunch of water and then get bloated and have to pee a ton. We want to sweat it out. We want to overflow, put it to work, put it to practice. Any attempt to try to be a blessing to society apart from God is something else besides living water. You know, and this idea of belief, whoever believes, talked about you know, reality and the description of reality. We talk about a lot of times how uh, belief is assenting to the right doctrinal positions right? and reducing belief to content of doctrine. But the fact that even belief here shows up twice, those who believe or receive, whoever he said about the Spirit, he's going to send the Spirit later, those who, anyone who receives the Spirit, believes anyone who believes, receives the Spirit. There's not like hierarchies within God's family. People who believe don't have the Spirit or people who have the Spirit who don't believe. That's not how this works. But those who believe would receive. But this belief, we tend to think about it as abstract doctrinal terms. But that's not the heart of this text. Belief is about trust. And even this thirst, it's this pre-verbal, from the gut, visceral, I want it. You know, my son, he's um, learning to talk, and it's kind of fun. And every now and then he gets these wires crossed. When we're, tr- we're trying to teach him some sign. You know, my wife's a speech therapist, so we're kind of regimented on the speech language development stuff. Uh, and so we try to teach him uh, up, you know, raising his hand. And also trying to teach him how to say help, but we don't know the sign for that, so we don't try to help, help. But then most of the time, he's asking for help or asking for up. Basically, he's confused the sign for up and the word help. So now whenever he wants help for something, he goes, huh? <laughs> it's called final consonant deletion, where you don't say the end, you know, in case there's any speech therapists out there. You get the beginning of the word, but you cut off the end of the word. He goes, huh? So he's trying to get on the couch, huh? He's trying to open the water, huh? But the, and it's kind of, it's kind of fun, so he just goes, huh? And he looks at you, and sometimes when he's feeling really lazy, he'll give it just, like, he'll look at you and go, huh? Like, I'm not raising both arms here, I don't have, or especially if he has a toy in his hand, and he doesn't want to, like, risk, risk, huh? You know, and so, 
the one hand up, the two hands up thing, huh? and that's kind of how that plays out. But the thing that, like, it, it's in moments like this that I realize why the dominant metaphor that we see in Scripture for how we relate to God is that he's father and we're child. And this is my first kid. Those of you who have kids a long time, you're like, welcome to the club. This is, you know, obvious one-on-one stuff. You know? but, but this, the reason that I felt like my heart stirred and worn by that, especially as I've been studying John and wrestling through belief and trust, is that two things have to happen in order for him to go, huh? One, he has to have an admission of need. I can't do this. I lack. I cannot. And at the same time, there has to be an admission of providence. But you can. But you have. But you will. And so when he goes, huh? He's saying, I don't have what it takes. You have what it takes. He's saying, I lack. You provide. He's saying, I'm unable, but you are able. He's saying, I can't get what I want. I know you're attentive and paying attention and will help me get. And so there's times you say no and it's like a, t- a tantrum, you know. <laughs> but it doesn't prevent him from next time going, huh? Sometimes God says no and we throw tantrums and that's okay to be disappointed by God. That's part of the deal. But we go back and keep asking. And so if you want to know, like I think that's such a good picture of what real belief is. Is I thirst, he is the living water. I lack, he provides. I sin, he's a savior. I'm unable, he's able. And sometimes we lack, very often we lack even the words. I was talking to one of my friends this week who's been struggling with these different panic attacks. And she can't even verbalize some of her prayers when she's in these modes of panic, but she can go, huh? Right? This pre-verbal, gut level, I don't have it, God, you have it. That's trust. That's belief. Whoever believes out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Not whoever has studied theology. Not whoever has great buttoned-up doctrine. Not whoever serves regularly at church. Not whoever gives 10%. Not whoever saves himself for marriage. Not whoever does the right thing all the time. Whoever believes, whoever from their heart says, Huh? I don't have it. God, you have it. From their heart flows streams of living water. And the whole thrust of this text is the religious establishment, us. Maybe you don't think you're part of the religious establishment, but you kind of are. (laughs) That we are the ones who tend to think, I don't need God. I have good doctrine. I know the Bible. I don't really need the Spirit's help. I don't really need God's ongoing intervention or providence. I don't really need to learn new things about God because I've I've read the books. Like we are in danger of becoming the Pharisees who lack thirst for God. And so we pray that God gives us thirst. Thirst is uncomfortable. Thirst can be physically painful. Thirst can be obsessive. It can lead to panic moments. I need water now. So in a sense, when you're really thirsty, you feel a bit out of control of your life because you're preoccupied with where's the next water bottle coming from. But we as Redemption Church, Redemption Flagstaff, we need to be people. This is, you, I don't know, like 
I know different redemption congregations are different levels of expressive during music, you know. You know, if you go to Redemption Alhambra, you guys, like, I tend to be like, wow, this didn't know I got invited to a dance party, <laughs> you know. You know, and you go to Redemption Gilbert, and it's like, I didn't know I was invited to a funeral, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Just kidding, Gilbert and Alhambra. Well, I was just, but there's different levels of expressiveness, right? But I remember, especially as a kid, going to church and seeing like the wacky people doing this thing during music, you know, and you're like, man, all eyes on them. Can we give them like the attention seekers a break? And that was my judgmental position, like looking at people being like, the people in the front row going, all eyes on me, all eyes on me. And that was, especially in high school, when you're kind of like, everything is filtered through the lens of attention, non attention, you know, and. But if, honestly, the more, the more I get to know God, the more I, I feel like I oftentimes need to physically go like this to teach my heart to do this. Help me, Father. Because sometimes my heart's in that position, but sometimes it's not. So sometimes our bodies teach our minds, sometimes our minds teach our bodies. But I hope that we can be people who reflect with openness, who recognize that we bring nothing to the table besides our thirst. But the more thirst you have, the better you will be. Let me pray, and we'll spend some time reflecting quietly. Jesus, help us be a thirsty people. Teach us that we need to be taught. Let us never be like the Pharisees who believe they have nothing to learn. God, pray for the people in here who who believe but don't yet understand or who want to trust you but lack the details. God, continue to bring us along. Let us believe that the hook is in our mouth. We're just not in the boat. But God, we want to be a people who from our heart flow rivers of living water. In order to do that, we need to be thirsty. So God, teach us and remind us of our inability, remind us of our lack. In the name of your son, we pray. Amen.